Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Tony Evans of the Evening Standard. This is it, a game that doesn't need hyping, but we'll do so anyway. Is the Champions League final bigger than the World Cup final? Can Real Madrid win it for the third season in a row? Will Liverpool have six stars on their shirt next season? Questions, questions. Let's start with the big one. What do Liverpool have to do to win? What do you reckon, John? I think defend. I don't think they can get get away with uh, some of the defensive displays they've had this season because Real Madrid are are brutal. They do punish you. Um, they're the, maybe the best of the counter-attacking teams. I think in Europe they can be out of a game, but just you know do it in, in, in five ten minutes to you. So Liverpool have got to be wary of lapses. But apart from that, they've got the tools to win this game. The you know the front three is is I would say tailor made to play against. A defence like Real Madrid's where the fullbacks go wandering a bit and there's the space in behind them. Uh, so if they can get the supply to the, 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 the front three and, and keep the door closed at the back, they've got a right good chance of winning this game. Mm, yeah. Liverpool, as you well know, Tony, in an inherently emotional club. Do people get carried away with the passion? How significant is it, that whole idea of it, putting their the whole heart into it? Well, I mean, I think, I think you've got to be sensible about it. I don't think you can get overly emotional about playing a team like Real Madrid. I think that the most important thing is Liverpool dictate the pace. If they play at, if, if they play at their pace and their tempo, then they've got a chance. If they, if they let Real dictate it, then they're in trouble. Um, I, I think they try and keep the game in front of them in, in the Real for the pitch. I mean, one of the things that I think they need to do is play, play a high line. Real haven't got that much pace. And the thing is, you can't sit deep and invite Ronaldo into your area because one of the best setters of the ball in the game, uh, deadly if the ball comes to his feet in the box. And is there a better big game player in the history of the game? Is mm. um, so you know it's going to be a big task. So they've got to be they've got to be calm. I mean, there is, as you say, there are times when Klopp's teams seem to live on an emotional ledge, and they, they can't be on there. They've got to be. It's one of those nights where they've got to keep the cool and not let it get away from them. Mm. I mean, in in Rome. You know, the um, against Roma, they started off, you know, with two one up, kill the game, but instead they got sucked into the, uh, you know, this mm. this um, vortex of fear. <laughs> yeah. mm. When you look at again, Jurgen Klopp is another inherently emotional mm. guy. He's got to keep himself in check. Is he? Well, he's obviously looking for the tactical tweak. What do you think that could be? I'm not sure if he will tweak. I don't think that's his. His brand of management, really. I mean, it's like 
you know, get the volume up to 10 and if that doesn't work, turn it up to 11. That's, that's the Klopp <laughs> approach. I remember the, you know, come on, it came unstuck in the Europa League final where, you know, once Seville in the second half started coming back at Liverpool, Klopp didn't really change things much. In fact, there's that sight of him trying to just basically rab, you know, rouse the crowd to make even more that, noise. That was the lowest point. That was the lowest, yeah. His time as Liverpool and that, manager. And that, I, that made me sort of question him a little bit. I mean, he has come a long, long way since then. It made me explode. Made you explode, <laughs> oh, yeah. You weren't sure about him, were you? Well, no, I mean, you know, you've, and, and uh, to be fair, I'm still not completely sure because it's a cup competition. It's obviously a very, very good, good cup competition, and they've made progress. But he's still not yet in the position to be deified as Liverpool manager. You know his achievements haven't quite got there yet. If he wins the Champions League, you've got to hold your hands up and say, "Well, you know." It's been but they are ahead of schedule, aren't they? Surely. I, I, well, I think yes and no. I mean, in the league, they're probably not. But then it's hard to analyse that because of Manchester City's sheer brilliance this season so everyone's miles behind Manchester City but you know I think Tony will know far better than me but the, 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 the essential job of any Liverpool manager is actually to win the league certainly certainly in, in, in the last two or three decades given the given the gap so until he wins that league then then it, you know that that's the real yardstick to be judged by I, I get what I get what Tony's saying about maybe Klopp does get deified a little bit too much given the achievements but I think we've got to remember supporting Liverpool is a lot of fun under Jurgen Klopp and we might talk about other clubs which aren't as much fun to support. I think he has mm. given these supporters a brilliant ride and a brilliant team to watch and that's why so many people buy into him. Mm. And of course he is the best manager. He was the best manager available to Liverpool when they got him yeah. and he remains the best manager available to him. You know, because you say you know, he hasn't quite reached the pantheon yet mm. doesn't mean yeah. you don't think he's the right manager for Liverpool. Mm. The right player for Liverpool, Mo Salah, um, you know, by any standards, has been an unreal season for him. You've just spent four or five days in, in Egypt searching for the real Mo Salah. <laughs> Give us an idea about what you found there and the culture that created him. Yeah, I mean, first of all, what, what, you, what you find out is, is, is what a, a sort of crazy but brilliant, beautiful country Egypt is and, and where, you know, where he comes from, I suppose, is he's got so many people behind him. He's got 100 million in that country. Who are, who are, and they all know his name because I actually called him Mo Farah. Mo Farah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find Mo Farah. I found, I found Mo Salah. I mean, I, I, I arrived in Cairo and I, I, I took the journey back to Negrig, his, his village, which is, I mean, you have to do it to believe it, really, because it's only 130 kilometres away. But it's you're going down increasingly sort of narrower and more potholed roads to get there. It's like living in, it's like a kid coming from the Brecon Beacons or something like that and getting all these buses to try to train with Chelsea or something and then going back again. So he did, did this incredible journey from his village, you know, four or five hours one way and four or five hours back to get to training at the age of 13. And seeing the contrast in a country like Egypt between Cairo you know, this huge metropolis of Cairo and all the way back to the, the sort of rural place that, that he comes from. Uh, and seeing, you know, the billboards with his face on it in Cairo and everything getting more kind of humble as you go you go back down to the village and, and, and this kind of like little tuk-tuk taxis still with Mo, Mo Salah's uh, face, face on them. You do get a sense of, of, of exactly what's behind him and, and where he's come from. And I think he's, I think he's a very important figure in, in the world at the moment because he unifies a country like that which is which is in such a sort of precarious region of the world mm. um, and 
maybe Manchester United fans or, or Everton fans would be immune to it. But I would say anyone else that loves football can't be totally immune to a story like his. And you throw into it not just his roots, but the fact he's he's just this wee guy that that that, that you know has proved all these doubts wrong from his previous time in England. You know, even if he didn't have the backstory, just what he's done this season compared to what he did at Chelsea before, and the question marks that were over him is incredible. Mm. Great humility, dignity, but he's got a heart. And I mean that, you know, by talking, you look at the way that he responded to the challenge of trying to get Egypt into the World Cup finals. It's got some nerve as well. That's going to be really interesting to see how he responds and almost be a little bit like Ronaldo and respond to the occasion. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is that it surprised a lot of people is um, how, how calm he's been under pressure. I mean, the, the penalty for Egypt is the obvious example. Mm. When front of goal, I mean, because you talk to people who saw him play for Roma last year, and he talks about, you know, he, he missed a lot of chances. He, you know, he does get around a one-on-one and, you know, he buckle a little bit. No sign of that. It's all been... And that's where Klopp's been brilliant for him. Um, you know, so he's, he's enhanced his confidence, even in the first couple of games of the season against Watford. People were saying, well, he's, he's, he's going to miss more chances than he scores. And no, we were all wrong. Uh, he's just been fantastic. And and also, it, it's a, a, he's a brilliant symbol in this somewhat rancorous political climate to someone who's so clearly, uh, you know, clearly a Muslim and makes it part of his life and part of his game and his celebrations. You know, to do that and to actually inspire joy instead of fear as, as say, we live in dangerous political times. Mm. So he's a great symbol all round. I think he fits Liverpool as a place and a club as well. You know, one of his old coaches was talking to him about the chemistry that, that, that he perceives that, that, that Salah has in, in Liverpool. And, and it really struck me where when I went back to the village, the, 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 the guy I was with who was... Who was sort of worker for, for Salah's foundation. He talks about how Salah goes back to the village as much as he can and, and has always said, you know, my, my, my friends are my friends and my family are my family. Now, that I lived in Liverpool for 15 years and that's a very kind of Liverpool attitude, actually. I think there's a, there's a sort of symbiosis between him and his roots and, and, and maybe that sort of scouse idea that you don't forget your roots and where you come from. Mm. How important in the sort of football sense, Tony, is it that you know, what we've come to know as the Fab Three stay together? I think it's uh, extremely important. Uh, I mean, the, they just complement each other superbly. You know, the, the movement, the pace. I mean, you, you can see opposition defences. You can see the fear. I mean, uh, Roma in particular were scared to go over the halfway line to get, because they didn't want to give them any space. And, um, you know, and obviously Salah is, uh, is the, you know, sort of the spearhead of it. Firmino is getting so many plaudits. But, you know, Mane... His work rate and the and his movements and his use of space and and drawing people away has has been fantastic. I mean, as no one could have foreseen how good this, the three of them were. They've just <laughs> it, and, and they're just a joy to watch. Yeah. Mm. As an extension to what Johnny was saying about um, the family roots of of Salah, you uh, met recently Trent Alexander Arnold. Mm. who strikes me as a similar character, obviously different generation, but someone, again, who is symbolic of a club's relationship with its community. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's brilliant. You know, he's, he's a young lad. He's, he's so... Uh, he, he's bright. He's really... He understands the importance of a football club to the community. It's 
come out of. And one of the most interesting things he says, he said when he was a kid, he saw friends of the family, uh, friends of his mother, and they'd set up a charity. And he thought to himself, if I'm ever, you know, if I ever make it any anyway, I'm going to set up a charity. I'm going to help people. This is the one hour at a time yeah. charity, yeah. So when he was very young, you know, and I, I mean, you know, pre-teenage, yeah. and he, he was thinking about that. And he's very conscious of that he's from the city, playing for the club, and he's a, you know, sort of a symbol of scouseness, you know, in the, in the team. And, uh, you know, his ambition is to be Liverpool captain. <laughs> and um, who's going to argue with that? <laughs> yeah, obviously made a breakthrough into the World Cup squad. Yeah. Can you analyse him in purely football terms, Johnny? Yeah. Why has he made such an impact so quickly? Well, I think he's, he's a very modern footballer in the sense that uh, you can't really say he's, he's one thing in terms of position. He's got a lot of tools. I mean, he came through at Liverpool playing, you know, number six, I think, a kind of Busquets role in, in, in the youth team he was apparently very, very good at that. He has played number 10 at some points, but more of a defensive midfielder. Then we've seen him as a right back, as a right wing back, which is probably where he'll play for England if he does. Um, when he started this season at right back, he, he, he looked, you know, accident prone. He looked like he, he, he needed to understand that position. What you see is how bright he is because he's very quickly eradicated some of the positional mistakes he was making. Um, and as a footballer, you know, he's got a lovely touch. He's got fantastic athleticism, um, makes good decisions, uh, is getting better and better. And as I say, he looks like someone that can, can play in a number of positions and, and is just a very modern kind of flexible, intelligent sort of tactical football. I know we've talked here before about the, how bad some aspects of the academy system can be, mm. but he's, he's a bit like a loftus cheek, but he's got, I mean, he's more flexible, but do you know what I mean? He's got that, that lovely sort of fluency as Adapt a footballer, adaptability, adaptability that, that I think mm. has come out of some of the coaching recently in England. Well, I think he's got a bit of Ashley Cole about him. Mm. You know, sometimes he will get caught out of position, and he, you know he'll, he'll get caught too far forward. But he's got the pace to get himself mm. out of trouble, and his passing is excellent. And um, you know whether whether he'll stay at right back or wing back full time is is another question. He still needs to learn how to use the line. Mm -hmm. The line's his friend, you know. It's uh, and he hasn't quite got that yet. And he's still raw, but you know, City targeted him, um, Roma targeted him, uh, Palace probably exposed him most in the mm -hmm. first half. Zaha, and he's probably going to get a working over in Kiev. They're going to try and Marcel will get up that line and try and put pressure on him. Ronaldo will move into the area between him and Lovren. And, you know, and it, it, he's at a lot on his plate for a young kid, but he's come out of it and he's coped, and hopefully he'll do that again on Saturday night. Mm. He has hunger. Isn't it remarkable that Ronaldo duplicates that hunger after 15 years of doing everything? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ronaldo is he's a funny cocktail because he, he's the ultimate superstar in many ways, but he plays with the... The hunger of, of, of when he first came into the game and, and in on reflection you know I covered his early years at Manchester United I suppose he was always like that there's always a danger of getting him wrong and seeing him as this sort of show ponies what he used to get called and and what a hungry what a what a committed and and sort of you know ruthless athlete he really is and and you know that he's he, he, he's thinking about another Ballon d'Or another Champions League final where he might have a decisive say in it um, these things, his ego, I suppose, fuels him in, in, in a good way. And I think he, you know he'll, he, he was poor at the start of the season, but it's timed 
his his actual season to to, to perfection to to sort of crescendo at the Champions League final. So I think he is a huge. Obviously, this isn't original analysis, but when when Liverpool have got to be very careful about Ronaldo, uh, uh, and for sure, and he is actually Tony the classic role model in the true sense of the the phrase in terms of you know here's someone I checked it with Paul Clement uh, because you know you hear the stories about him being on the uh, coming off a flight from a European game at four in the morning and going straight into an ice bath and he said that is exactly what he does and he brings teammates with him and he's even got a recovery suite built into his house to do so so when we're talking about the influence that you could have in terms of attitude on young players He's got to be one of the top ones, isn't he? Oh yeah, you know, you talk to you talk to the people who've coached him and dealt with him, and they say in training, you know, he puts everything into it. He's not exactly a thinker. You didn't, you know, so sort of, if you're doing um, technical stuff, you know, he's he kind of drifts <laughs> out of it. But on the physical stuff, and he, what's so amazing is he's got virtually no cartilage left in his knees. You know, he it, it, it's he, he probably shouldn't be playing the game at this stage. And yet he's still got that engine, and as you say, he's got like a nuclear ego that powers him. And it's not, it's not the. Um, I mean, you know, we've seen egos on the pitch over the years. There's plenty of players you know you could criticise. Some of them who play in this country, mm. and you look at them, and some of them who play for Arsenal, and you say to yourself, mm. Mm, you know, more ego than application. You could never doubt no. Ronaldo's application. Uh, as I say, one of the best single game players in the world ever. Mm. What about? Gareth Bale, do you expect him to play a full role? No, uh, I think he'll come off the bench. Um, it, it's, I mean, Bale's brilliant, but I actually think Asensio is such a dangerous footballer that maybe it would be better for Liverpool if Bale did, did start. Um, he doesn't quite seem to be a number one for Zidane. Hasn't been really since, since the start of the season. Um, he hasn't had the best season in terms of he's been interrupted by, by injuries. Benzema's getting older. I actually think Real Madrid probably can't play Bale, Benzema and Ronaldo. That's probably too slow and all. Well, slow, but, you know, it's lacking in athleticism. Um, maybe not going to do much defending from the front with that, that front line. So I think they will bring in one of the younger players, Vasquez, or he's probably not as good, or Asensio. But, mm. but, but Bale, <laughs> not a bad option to come off the bench. Yeah, the only thing which Bale would give them is he'd drive past the Liverpool midfield. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're probably not mobile enough to pick him up, even in the the, the state of his career at the moment. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think Liverpool would prefer Asensio, you know, I think they'll find him easier to deal with in terms of movement. Mm. We're talking about this being a 7-6 final. What about the Real Madrid defence? You can get at that. Oh, yeah, and especially the, the, the three, the Liverpool three. Mm. They'll definitely get at them. I mean, you know, they, uh, you know, they push the full-backs up. They leave space in behind them. And, you know, the, the, the centre-backs are not the most mobile you've ever seen. So that, that's an area which I would have thought that the idea would be, like City and like Roma, Liverpool to get the ball forwards as quickly as possible and, and really get a charge on against them. You, I mean, you can you can get at them definitely, and, and I think there's great scope for Salah with with Marcello, sort of leaving gaps and so on. But he's so good going forward. I mean, I think he's one of the big dangers in the game for Liverpool in, in terms of what they've got yeah, to that, defend against. That, that's where you know that 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 right side for Liverpool with mm. you know Trent and Lovren is going to mm. be is going to be tested. And one, one of the one of the things that against City and Roma, when when young Trent come under pressure. No one dropped in to help him. Yeah. I think they're going to have to do that in Kiev. Yeah. Someone's going to have to be assigned to, if they make a concerted effort to get across, 
drop in and you know sort of flood that area and stop you know make sure Real have another point of attack. Mm. Just want to also look at a couple of broader issues. Um, the first is the suitability of some of these final venues. You know, you're going in via Amsterdam, you're going in via Poland. Mm. People are going as far as Istanbul to get in into Kiev. Does UEFA have a responsibility to the supporter to actually stage finals in a ground and a nation that is capable of staging it? Should they? Yes. Do they? No, they don't care. They've had all their hotels booked up for, mm. you know, for more than a year and they're getting in and out. They're fine. They're happy. They don't care. Um, and it's a, a recurring problem. Um, in football, the football authorities don't really give a damn about the fans. It's true. I mean, and, and they give away, they give, there's so few tickets actually for Real Madrid and Liverpool fans anyway as a proportion. I think that shows you where the... Quite a few Real Madrid fans have just said that we're not going. Aren't they? They've sent 2,000 tickets back. Yeah, and 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 I just think it, it it it's just just shows you where the priorities lie. It does seem that a lot of these finals are given out for political reasons. I mean, that certainly that was the case with Istanbul. They wanted to reward the the Turkish FA. That said, I don't want to be you know, someone from a small country myself. I I don't want to sort of say the finals always have to be in in the big established you know Western European nations. It is nice going to the outposts. It's just that if they're going to do that, some maybe maybe they could be subsidised. Maybe they could help the fans in some way. I don't know. But it's, it, it, Liverpool fans have had a bit of a bad run, haven't they? Mm. Istanbul, Athens, and now and now Kiev. And, well, and let's be honest, they could have it almost anywhere. And if Liverpool or Man United don't get there, it's not really an issue. Mm. You know, it's um, it only becomes an issue where Liverpool and United get there, and you're going to get what another 30,000, 40,000 people travelling who haven't got tickets. Mm. With the Champions League, I asked it you know, in the intro, is the Champions League final bigger than the World Cup final? I don't think it is, but I'm 46 and I'm a different generation. I think you might ask younger people and they might say that it is. I mean, maybe football's changing. Um, I think it's, it's probably a harder, higher level uh, to win the Champions League final. I think the Champions League is probably the ultimate in football at the moment in terms of standards. But the World Cup, I think we'll see the the, the, the viewing figures at the end of the tournament will still captivate the world more than more than the Champions League. And, and you know, three out of four years, it, it is bigger than the World Cup final because obviously it's not coming on. But you know what? If, if England ever got to a World Cup final, would see how big it was. Mm. I'm sure the Germans would say it, uh, it's big, uh, the World Cup final's bigger. I'm sure the Spanish would. You know, it's um, it, it's just uh, in, in, in poor little England, <laughs> you have to take what scraps you can get. Yeah. Well, let's look at the, the FA Cup very briefly from, mm. from Saturday. Um, Jose Mourinho, sour in defeat. Yeah. Sterile, sterile in performance, that fair? I'd say sour and sterile is a fairly... You know, blanket ter terms for for the season that Manchester United have had, and 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 he's been. Um, it was a timid, uh, inhibited, um, negative Manchester United performance. They had a lot of the ball, but they were they were scared of their own shadows. It didn't really open up. You had Pogba, you know, trying to grapple with all his defensive responsibilities. You had Sanchez not playing near enough goal to make make any kind of real impact, having to drop back and look at the. Chelsea wing-backs, um, you know, you had, you had Rashford, his confidence shot from the season that he's had. Lingard, he's really like as a player, but just didn't get enough of the ball. I mean, it was, it was a, it was, it was grim watching for Manchester United. 
And Chelsea did to United or Conte did to Mourinho what he has liked doing to so many coaches in, 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 in previous big games like that. Um, in some ways, losing could be good for United because I think it, they have to take stock now. Um, they've made, spent a lot of money under Mourinho. They've improved, yes, in terms of results and points, but not, not hugely, you know. If you look at those eight players who've come in under Mourinho, essentially he's only friends now with one of them, which is Matic. <laughs> that's got to tell you something, isn't it? Yeah, well, well I mean, one thing that's, that's baffled me in, in his reign is that he doesn't, need, doesn't tend to sign players that you actually think that, that, that fit his philosophy. So it's almost as if he's trying to satisfy the, the Manchester United need for glamour by, through his signings. Then when he gets a hold of them, then he tries to make them into Mourinho players. He might actually be better if he just went and did what he what he what he always has done. So Matic is the one signing that you'd you'd say, well, that, well, there was Jose Mourinho signing a Jose Mourinho player, so it's kind of worked out. Think of Klopp and Guardiola, how they sign players who absolutely fit their philosophy. I think there's there's, there's a big difference there. Well, I mean, the thing is, he's got so much pace available to him, and he's wasted it. Yeah. He hasn't used it, you know, Rashford, Martial, Lingard, mm. or even Pogba. And, you know, it's, yeah. been, it's been misused. It's, it's almost like he sucked the life out of them. And Matic is so one-dimensional. On Saturday, every time United got the ball, Chelsea just dropped back in, in, into, you know, sort of the shape, sat deep. But, you know, the only way to, to disrupt that is get the ball up, up, up the field fast. The ball come into Matic. One touch, two touch, three touch, four touch, look up sideways. And you're like... Everything stopped. Chelsea is set. You know, there's... You're right. And, and, and Mourinho had a part. He did have a passer in midfield. He had Herrera, but Herrera's responsibility was to look after Hazard, not mm. to not to create the play. And that, that's that's the problem all over with you know. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, you know, it, it's well, and you can't see them catching up because when you look at like Liverpool and City, you know, Klopp and Guardiola have just let the speedsters off the leash mm. to go on. You know, you know, so to close them down, press them, and when we get the ball. Get yeah. forward, you know. United, United didn't press Chelsea. They didn't. Uh, they didn't get the ball forward at any pace, and it was just a grim, grim performance. I mean, it wasn't the worst final you've ever no, seen, no. ever seen. But when you consider the amount of talent that was on the pitch and the amount of managerial talent, it it added up to something that was a little bit dispiriting. Yeah, is there a fundamental failure to adapt to changing times with Mourinho in terms of? How he deals with young players, you know, that authoritarian style mm -hmm. doesn't work anymore, does it? No, I think I think the managers that are prospering at the moment have got some kind of emotional connection. Um, I'm actually, I'm not sure if Guardiola is, is that touchy feely, but but he's just a genius in many many. Klopp other ways. is certainly. Klopp's got the emotional connection, makes a big part of it, and I think I think you have to. I mean, Eric Blackett was said to me a year ago. Um, Eric's been at a number of clubs. And he said he'd noticed how young players coming into the game, he said, when you put on a coaching session now for young players, he said, they're very opinionated about how the session should be going, what the tactics are. So they're actually very educated about the game in a way that, you know, the previous generation just did what they were told. Um, and I think that, that's a little sort of snapshot of how management has had to change or should, should change. Uh, and Mourinho's kind of endless carrot and stick, but usually stick, doesn't, seem to fit with the times really and then the fact that on the pitch it's, it's kind of what he's actually telling them not just the way he's telling them but the, what he's telling them to do is pretty joyless as well that does seem to go against where football is at the moment mm. the, you know the conventional wisdom Tony is that basically 
he was almost bled dry by the Real Madrid experience. I know you don't fully agree with that. Well, I think it's Chelsea, the way Chelsea do things. You, you look at, I mean, the last three Chelsea managers who won the league didn't last, uh, you know, sort of little, well, they lasted a little more than the season. Mourinho didn't even last the season. You know, they, they sacked Ancelotti, um, Mourinho, and we're seeing Conte mm. doing it. The way they do things at Chelsea sucks the life out of managers. They're too busy fighting battles with the board, uh, not getting the players they want. And, you know, it's like, I was looking at that cup final, and I thought there's two of the best, no matter what you think of Mourinho, yeah. you know, a brilliant man, Jim and Conti, two of the best managers in the world, playing in the sterile cup final. One phrase occurred to me, made in Chelsea. <laughs> and, you know, and, and both of them seem to have had the life sucked out of them by their experience at Stamford Bridge. And, you know, it's a, who'd, who'd want to take that job? Mm. I mean, if you're Allegri or Sarri, you know, you go there and you think, oh, I mean, Luis Enrique apparently is asking them, um, as asking comedy money, you know, <laughs> as a way of telling them that, like, you know, I, I don't want to, but if you're going to be that stupid, you yeah. know, give me that. No one wants the job because the role of the manager's been downgraded. And it seems to have, it, it, if Real Madrid uh, applied some body blows to Mourinho's ego, I think um, uh, the his experience at Stamford Bridge, you know, sort of really landed the, the knockout punch. Mm. Mm. Interesting times at Chelsea, to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, Roman Abramovich hasn't had his visa mm. renewed. What do you think the implications are for Chelsea? Well, it is his club. I mean, that's, that, that's always been the, the thing about covering Chelsea. You know that it, it, it's an oligarch club. He rules it. So without him around, it's, it, it, it's at a time they need direction, it's got to be a problem for them. I guess he... I, I guess he can run it through Marina Gravenskaya. Um, but this is this is a big summer, another t time of flux for them. And I, th I think they got they got a bit lucky with Conte because, as Tony said, people don't, the elite managers don't really want that job anymore. Conte wasn't the first choice, but but he, he, he sort of came available and, and he was a brilliant choice for them. But they might not get lucky again. Mm. They, might, they might find it a lot harder this time. Yeah, and I, I think Guardiola and Klopp would struggle in their, their framework, the way they do things. I think they fail there. I don't, I don't think there's a manager in the world who can... And I think it's absolutely remarkable that both Mourinho and Conti won the title with, their, with, with teams, mismatched squads and, you know. Mm. Because it is, you know, to your, to your point about, you know, modern managers, the top managers, they don't make a jump without looking and then looking again. You know, so let's look at Arsenal. You know, people quite close to that place have told me, well, actually, you know, an Allegri would look at that and say, well, the squad needs mm. drastic surgery. There's not a lot of money going into mm. this. We've got a disaffected fan base. Not Why, in the Champions League. Not in the Champions League. Why on earth do I need this? Yeah, I mean, these guys are like, managers have become like star footballers and they can pick and choose a lot more than they used to. Um and and that that is absolutely true of Arsenal. It, it, it's a, it's not a job that you, you're going to arrive and and win straight away, I don't think. But you but you've got a fan base that are, are pretty sort of fed up. Mm. So maybe they are. It looks like they are going to go for Arteta. Maybe that is actually what fits more the, the 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 where they are at the moment. They can sell that to supporters, and the manager coming in can sell that as more of a. This is the start of a building process rather than we're going to fix things straight away. And there might be a bit of buy-in because it's a you know, younger, sort of new broom um, situation. But I, know, I noticed that Arteta's talking about getting his hands 
properly on recruitment and, and, and having a lot of control. And I think that is right for whoever comes in because that squad does need proper, proper mm. restructuring. But if they're talking about only having about 50 million plus any sales, you're not going to get anything with that, are you? No, no. I mean, you, you look at both Arsenal and Chelsea and you think to yourself, only the desperate or the deranged to take it. <laughs> or, or the very young, you know, like Arteta. And Arteta's got a lot going for him. You know, he's done well at City. Um, you know, in, in particular, that phase a couple of, a couple of December's ago when... Um, when Guardiola didn't feel the players were listening to him. You know, Arteta did the team talks, and uh, in particular against Arsenal when they were 1-0 down at half-time. He spoke to them before and he spoke to them at half-time, and you think, oh, he's got a bit about him. But taking over from Wenger in a job like that, with with his lack of experience, yeah. um, you know, it's I just don't see that it's a good idea. What, what they actually need... They need someone with a lot of experience who can go into a club and get hold of the whole place, organise it, and sort it out. But, you know, it was available. And and those who are available are probably below Arsenal's sense of self. Mm. Unai Emery's been mentioned, hasn't he, in the last 24 hours? He, that, that, that doesn't impress me too much. I think he, he, he never really got... You know, Paris Saint-Germain seemed too big for him. Didn't touch it, did he? Didn't, didn't really, touch it. Didn't really. No, didn't make an impact, really. Um, I, I don't think he's he'd be the right man for Arsenal there. I, I think a lot, as we've touched on, will be to do with how how much time they're given, how 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 it's seen, how much space they're given. It, it does seem a lot like the Manchester United situation, where you know Moyes came in with a six-year contract and thought that that's what he had, and then you know six months later he's gone. And then they get the big old experienced Van Gaal to kind of redraw everything and, and, and so on. And they need to decide what they want and they need to sell it to the fans. If it's Arteta, they need to say, look, give this guy two or three years. But I'm being dreamy, aren't I? This is modern football. No chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mauro Silva talked up for Everton. Uh, myth or magic? Oh, I, I, what's it all about? I mean, you know, it's... Uh, Looks I, good. Yeah, I mean, it looks good and doesn't talk very well. Um, uh, he, um, you know, he has runs where he seemed to do okay down at the bottom of the division and, and then he gets himself sacked and you think to yourself, I mean, Everton, they, they were talking about the first time they come in from Watford once with 15 million for him and, and of course it sacked him within what? Two yeah. months? Yeah. yeah. And um, so is this the uh, the man who's going to reignite Goodison? Is this the man who's going to recreate the school of science? I don't think so. Does it tell you a little bit about someone's untrammeled ambition when he's eight, ten games into a, a club? He gets a sniff of another, what you know, his, which he perceives to be a bigger job, and then basically it's all bets off. I think it does. I mean, it wasn't long. It wasn't long at Hull before he, the signals were out that actually this is the job that he's taken to establish himself in England, so he can get another job. Uh, there's a touch of the AVB about him, I think, in, in his yeah. in his kind of relentless ambition to move and and maybe better himself financially as well. Um, so yeah, there's been times watching Watford, has Watford, Watford that you thought, oh, this is this is really good. Um, I saw his last home game, and they were a train wreck, and they were by the end of they were it, going an absolute shambles. And I do wonder if he's the kind of guy that gives you a bit of a thrilling ride, but actually the results aren't there. You know, there's an element of Martinez. 
about uh, with that about Martinez, but you know Martinez has got more solid achievement, I would say. But yeah, I mean, quite often with Watford, you'd watch and they'd, they'd score three goals, but they'd lose two in the final five minutes, and, and that seems a bit of a Marco Silva trait to me. Mm. Just on Everton, Tony, with your knowledge of the city, how big an impact has Liverpool's success and the manner of that success had on Everton? Oh, it's um, it's been really unfortunate for them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's um, it's caused more pain and angst than Sam Allardyce, um, and that that's a lot of pain and angst. Uh, I I think Saturday night's going to be a very tough night for them. Um, well, it, you know, unless Real Madrid win. Yeah, they, they went into the season believing that they were on the on the right path, that they, they bought well. Um, and to be fair, there was plenty of people, you know, including myself, who thought that that, that done all right. When it was clear that they needed a goal scorer, it was clear that they needed some pace, at, at you know, in the defence and in the midfield. But you know, overall, you thought they'd have a reasonable season, and no one expected to go so badly, and no one expected Liverpool to do so well. So those combination of factors as um as have made it a miserable season for Evertonians. I'm, I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> One of the things that sums up modern football to me is that people writing last summer, you know, Everton have won the transfer window. That's the nonsense of, of, of our modern football coverage, isn't it? Uh, and it all unravelled so so horribly from, from there, but, you know, at least they won the transfer window. Talk the nonsense is an Everton, or an Everton-related individual, David Moyes. Mm. What did you make about the way that West Ham basically said thanks but no thanks? Yeah, I thought it was pretty shabby. Wasn't that surprised, really. I'm not sure if he was either. Um, I mean, he, from two or three weeks before the end of the season, was was trying to ask questions about where we're going, transfers, need to rebuild the squad, which I think is all sensible when you look at where West Ham are. And it was at that point where, you know, the silence was was deafening. Um, and in the end, I think they've 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 gone for the next thing um, rather than stick with somebody who's I think David did a really really good job there he was eight, they were 18th when he arrived um, he organised them he got something out of Arnautovic you know he was doing nothing before Moyes arrived identified Masuaku as, as, as an important player um, and I'm curious about this idea about the style I, mean, I know West Ham fans are going on about style but the football was fine and all these clubs that are sort of, you know, from seventh or eighth downwards are talking about the need for, for a brilliant style. I mean, show me the club that's playing beautiful football and surviving in the Premier League, given the financial, you know, Bournemouth maybe are about as close as you can get. But there isn't a club out there that's that's doing this champagne stuff. And as I said, the football was fine under under Moyes. But anyway, they've um, I think they've gone for a more typical West Ham appointment, maybe a manager they can have a bit more influence over and, and retain control of transfers. What do you think of, of you know, looks like Pellegrini is going to be their choice. I'm pretty underwhelmed by that. I don't know about oh, you. Extremely underwhelmed. I mean, he's, um, he, he's not, let's say he's not a 24-7 manager, <laughs> for, you know, for, mm-hmm. for one. And secondly, I think he's been brought in because he's more pliable than some of the other names that were mentioned. I mean, you know, it's um, uh, David Moyes obviously wanted nothing to do with the, the system that they're planning to set up, the director of football, mm-hmm. which seems to be just another method that uh, David Sullivan could get, by which he could get involved in transfers. Yeah. And that's what they need to stamp out, that sort of culture. There are many things wrong with West Ham, but the meddling of 
David Sullivan is probably the, the most destructive to managers there. And um, I don't see this will stop. So I can imagine another flirtation with the relegation zone next year. And, um, and you know, it's there's only so often you can dance along the ledge and at some point you'll get caught out. And I feel sorry for West Ham fans uh, who are in general a good bunch. I don't get their delusions about good football. It's about the, a bit like the school of science thing, mm-hmm. you know. The academy and all that. Yeah, stop it. You know, it's to, it, it, it hasn't been true for a long, long time, if it was ever true. But, uh, you know, would anyone shed any tears if West Ham got relegated? Mm. It is a deeply unpopular club, isn't it? Well, they've made themselves pretty unpopular among, by, among their own fans, first of all, mm. in the last in the last couple of years. It's hard to hard to warm to them. It's hard, hard to know what they think their identity is. Now they're not at Upton Park. Uh, you know, the, the squad's a, it's a, a funny old squad. You look at the... You know the the sort of players that have been collected, players of a certain level and a certain age, um, that whole sort of train of of, of youth that, that they always used to have. I mean, that could still be there with kids like Declan Rice, and 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 obviously you've still got Noble, but not sure if that's how Pellegrini is going to manage. Pellegrini will want some experienced campaigners, I, w- I should say. Um, so it's probably good news for Pablo Zabaleta and, and no one else this appointment. Yeah. A couple of questions you know, on one, actually one on the on the West Ham theme uh, from the listeners and the viewers. Um, Tony from Simon Penn, James Collins, eleven years service and let go by email. Does that just about sum up the way that the club works and the value the owners place on loyalty? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's. Um, I, I think there's there's ways of operating. That uh, where you can practice decency, and I don't think there's a lot of decency gone on at West Ham since these owners have taken over, and um, and it will continue until they leave. I mean, you know, sort of the big hope of West Ham fans is that a buyer will come in. Don't see many buyers for football clubs, Premier League clubs at the moment, and don't see any buyers for a club without its own stadium and in such a mess. Mm. Um, on a happier note, um, John Dunn asks us, uh, Darren Moore, do mm. we welcome his appointment at West Bromwich Albion? That's a great appointment. Um, I mean, that's that's a club understanding its culture, I think, which doesn't happen very often with these appointments. Um, not only did he sort of restore unity and a bit of soul to West Brom, I think he did pretty well in a football sense as well, if you look at the turnaround and results. Um, the, the, the question for them is obviously having to get out of that, that championship and you, you see with Neil Warnock going up um, again maybe Steve Bruce is about to do the same that you are in against managers who, who mm. are almost specialists at that level and that will be the challenge for Darren Moore it will be trying to navigate that, that really long season against these guys who know exactly what they're, what they're doing but if they give them a bit of time again I think it's a good one for West Brom. You need someone who understands the club, don't you? You do, you do. And let's hope that he'll, um, you know, he'll be able to cope in that division, which is a tough div- division. On the plus side, they've got the parachute money, which gives them a huge advantage. You know, if they, if they invest well in the summer, um, it, it could go well. It's one of those, what you fear is that you'll get to Christmas and they'll be mm. in the bottom half of the table and then they'll go and look for a firefighter, someone who can bring them up. So I mean I think we all wish Darren Moore yep. the best, but it's um, you know you, you know he's going to need to produce quickly. Mm-hmm. Another one from uh, Bose: Should Leicester be careful what they wish for 
as the mm -hmm. media spent a lot of time saying that Southampton shouldn't have sacked Claude Puel, which is probably what they're just about to do, isn't it? <laughs> Possibly. Uh, yeah, because Claude Puel is, 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 is a pretty serious, pretty good football manager with a, a distinguished CV behind him. Uh, and I think he guarantees a, a real level of competency. I think you're not going to go down with Claude Puel. You're going to have a very studious, meticulous man. I met him uh, a couple of months ago, and that's what really struck me was how serious and meticulous he is. He'll develop players. And what he might not do is give you much of a thrill on the pitch. And that, and that you know, for those Leicester fans who've had the, mm. the champagne of 2015-16... And the owners. And the owners might not give you the, the glamour. And you've got to, the, the, there's certain players there that are used to playing in a particular way and Puel wants more of a possession game. So uh, if they're going to replace him, they need to replace him with somebody good because he's your ticket to stay in the league, I think, and, and to, to stabilise as a club if they want to stabilise. Do you think they will replace him? I think they will. I don't think they. I think I think they're like the gambler who, in the end, stability won't be as attractive as as, as gambling again. Mm. Speaking of gambling, um, uh, Eli from California. Hey, chaps! There used to be a Chelsea player called Ross Barkley. Mm. I'm not sure if you remember him. What next for him? <sighs> the championship. Oh, Tony, it's a bit harsh. Well, it is harsh, but I mean, where's he going to go? Uh, I mean, obviously, Conte didn't want him. That was made clear immediately. Um, he, he, you know, he struggled at, at Goodison because Koeman just wasn't having him mm. at all. And um, he's got he's got loads of talents. He's physically mm. he's great, but uh, you know, so the people say he's not exactly. He hasn't got football intelligence on the pitch. Mm. Let's say, and it's hard to see him. It's hard to see many Premier League clubs wanting to take a chance on him at this stage. He's still young. I mean, I lost in the void, though, isn't he, Johnny? Yeah, he needs to be coached properly. Tony's right about the, <clears throat> you know, the football intelligence. That that's that's always been the, the missing piece. I think he's probably been misused a bit by previous coaches. I'm not sure what Martin has wanted to do with him, for example, and um, him and Kuman didn't gel. There's a player there, though. Um, he's certainly someone that, if he went to a, a a West Ham or a Newcastle or a Crystal Palace, and he was a bigger fish in a small pond you could see him being a hero somewhere but actually I think he could still play for a top club just needs I, to be I, I, I think he's a bit like John Joe Shelby and could be the best player in the championship mm -hmm. right we've got to end um, just as a final point predictions for, for Saturday night what do you think I think Real Madrid will do it I, I, I just a fool would bet against Real Madrid in the Champions League final. Um, I've just seen them find a way to win in in, in these three out of the last four seasons. Three out of the last four, you know, they've won. So it's very hard to predict against Real Madrid. But you know what? Probably a better AC Milan team played mm. against a worse Liverpool team. But three 0 up at half time, and and you know, and Liverpool won. So you know, who knows? And um, so yet the Real can win the first half. For John and Liverpool win the second half and take the trophy on. <laughs> well, uh, judged by Johnny's standard, I'm a fool. This isn't a Madrid team for the ages, and I reckon Liverpool to win by the odd goal in five. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Mm -hmm.